are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. All right, our uh, passage today is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, everybody. If you know me, you probably know already by now that I love books. Uh, That's not much of a a surprise, I I don't think. Uh, What you may not know, and you may judge me for this, uh, is that I, I never read a book without a pen in my hand. I know some of you probably grew up with moms who were like, no, books are our friends. Don't write in them. Don't fold the pages down. But I figured I spent money on it. It's mine now. Uh, and if I disagree with it, I'm going to make sure the book knows. Because uh, the best way to, to you know, actually have a dialogue with something you're reading is to write all over it. Now, the problem is um, I can't read books that other people have written in. You know, you go to a used bookstore and you're flipping through the books, and if you try to read a book someone else has written in, it's like we're having a conversation, just the two of us, right? And somebody we didn't invite keeps shouting, that's important, or five stars. I'm like, just let me have a conversation here, right, and and decide for myself if what Johnny's saying is important or not. Now, so I'll go to a used bookstore, I'll flip through a book, I'll try to make sure, hey, it's not not marked up or anything like that. What I I found is that fiction books are, are... generally clean, unless it's a, a high schooler's, you know, annotated assignment or something like that, and then it's, it's like a rainbow. But if it's, if it's fiction and an adult read it, it's clean. If it's nonfiction, like designed to teach you something or show you how to do something or instruct you in some new way of living, the book is almost always marked up, or at least the first chapter is. Right, used bookstores are just awash in self-help books or productivity books or leadership books or things like that where it's, it's the, just the first chapter has gotten the pen treatment and everything after that is, it's, it's almost like it's never even been read. I, I was reading one just this week that I thought was clean until I got to section two and whoever owned it before me really loved about three pages of it. Marked it up like crazy. Must have really enjoyed it. I, I don't know what happened after that. Kept reading and thought, man, that, I don't know. That's going to be difficult, like difficult to actually do. So I guess the book got closed and put back on the shelf. And then eventually it made it into a box. And then the box made it into the garage. And then the box made it to Half Price Books, where I got it for How many of us are kind of, like, we treat the, the books that way where we think, you know, there's, there's got to be some, some new nugget of wisdom or information that if I just knew it, 
that would solve all my problems. That would radically change everything. So you get the book and you start reading it and you're a, you're a chapter in and you're like, oh man, this guy says I have to do something. Well, let's close the book, put it on the shelf and buy the next one because the next one probably has that little nugget of transformational wisdom that I need to learn because once I learn it, everything in my life is magically going to come together and make sense and you get a chapter or two chapters or three chapters in and then what happens? You find out you got to do something with it. We've been reading through the Sermon on the Mount for the last uh, four or five months. If you've been reading it with a pen in your hand, I imagine your copy is marked up like crazy. Five stars. Jesus is awesome. This is really good. Underlined all this sort of stuff. We're, We're coming now to the very end of the sermon. And we're up to the point where Jesus is now asking us, What are you going to do with this? You've read it. You've heard it. You've marked it up. You've agreed with it. You've thought about how cool life would be if everybody lived like this. So, what are you going to do with what I've said? But of course, in his style, rather than just ask us that question, Jesus gives us a picture of what the future looks like for the person who says, yes, as one of your followers, I'm going to do this, versus the person who says, no, I hear it, maybe it sounds nice, but I'm not intending to follow, I'm not intending to do it. And he uses an illustration of two home builders, two house builders to show us what the future looks like. So as we look at these two builders in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, I want you to keep in mind the central idea that I think is coming through in this illustration and actually the the two before it, now at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is telling us, look, hearing without doing isn't really hearing at all. Hearing without doing isn't hearing at all. Let's jump into Matthew 7. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, And while you turn there, it's on page 966 if you want to grab the Black Bible underneath the seat in front of you, I want to start by highlighting the two most important words in today's passage. Uh, The word wise in verse 24 and foolish in verse 26. Now, for those words to make sense, we have to remember what the sermon is what the Sermon on the Mount is intending to accomplish. Maybe you remember all the way back to the beginning of this whole series on this sermon when we said the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation that Jesus extends to us to live wisely, to grow in wisdom, to live into his wisdom for living. The Sermon on the Mount is not a law for you to obey. It is an invitation into a wise way of living, an invitation for you to accept, an invitation to live in a wisdom that is grown through practice, a wisdom that is centered on Jesus, a wisdom that's shaped by the character and the values of the God of the kingdom that Jesus represents. 
a wisdom that is oriented around and informed by the fact that that kingdom has broken into the world in Jesus and continues to break into our world through us as citizens of that kingdom. So at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus now explicitly invites us to live into that kind of wisdom, that Jesus-centered kingdom wisdom, by contrasting two very different builders in this last illustration. One is wise, the other is foolish. Let's look at Jesus' words. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house. Verse 26, and everyone, this is the contrast, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house. Now, what's the difference between wisdom or the wise builder and foolishness or the the foolish builder? It's not, the difference is not that one listens to Jesus and the other doesn't, right? It's not that one has heard Jesus' words and the other has not heard what Jesus is teaching. The difference between the wise and the foolish builders is that one listens to Jesus and thinks, that was nice. I could see some value there. But then goes on living the way they were living versus the other who listens to Jesus and does what Jesus says one who's living into the wise way of Jesus' wisdom. Because it's not enough. Jesus is really clear about this. It's not enough to just hear Jesus. If you've ever tried to get a kid to do something you want them to do, you already know this. You tell a kid, go clean your room, and they say, I hear you, but don't do it. What do you say? sure you actually heard me. Or if you're a boss and you've got employees, you tell a subordinate, right, hey, uh, here's what I need you to do for me. And they're like, I hear you, boss. I'm on it. And they don't do it. How do you respond? I'm not so sure you actually heard what I said, right? There's something about hearing that implies doing. It turns out, you know, hearing without doing isn't actually hearing at all. This is what Jesus is saying in this, these last illustrations, the last three illustrations. There's, there's two ways to respond to what he says, two ways to respond to the sermon, to his teaching. You can hear it and do it or hear it and not do it. And actually, that word uh, do or the phrase not do has, has shown up throughout the sermon. Jesus has been building to this conclusion at the very end. Uh, in, in Greek, the word behind it is really flexible. It's used in all sorts of different contexts. In English, the word's not so flexible. So we've had to translate it a couple of different ways. Uh, but just quickly running through it, back in chapter 5, Jesus said, whoever does these commandments, whoever does these commandments and teaching, teaches others to do them uh, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Chapter 6, he said, beware of, my Bible says, practicing your righteousness. It's doing. Beware of doing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Or chapter 7, you remember this one, whatever you would want others to do for you and, and to you, you the same do for and to them. Except your Bible may say, you know, treat them. 
However you want to be treated, treat them. Uh, and then in these closing illustrations here at the end of uh, chapter 7, beginning in, in verse 13 to the end, uh, this word shows up again eight more times. Every healthy tree does good fruit. Every diseased tree does bad fruit. Uh, though your Bible may say, you know, bears good fruit, bears bad fruit. Or not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, what's the point? Well, the point is that the, the key differentiator between living the way of Jesus' wisdom or living in the way of foolishness is not found in whether or not you hear Jesus. It's found in whether or not you hear and do. Because it turns out hearing without doing isn't really hearing at all. One author uh, summarizes it this way. It says, the essence of discipleship, the essence of following Jesus is found not in words, uh, nor in religiosity, nor even in the performance of spectacular deeds in the name of Jesus, but only in the manifestation of true righteousness. The essence of following Jesus is the manifestation of true, as Jesus has taught it in the Sermon on the Mount, true righteousness. Or you could put it more succinctly, that genuine discipleship, genuine following Jesus is not found in what you say, what you proclaim. It's found in what you do, how you perform. Now, Jesus sets up this contrast because he wants us to, to get, to really feel at a visceral level, uh, the difference between someone who merely listens to him and someone who actually listens to him and agrees and does and follows. But before we get on to kind of the rest of the image and the little story that's behind it, I want to pause just for a minute and, and ask ourselves, like, how does this work out in our lives? If it's true that hearing without doing isn't hearing at all, then what are we supposed to do with what we've heard? So maybe you, in, uh, in your own time or with a community group or in, uh, you know, around the table or with friends or something like that, you could ask yourselves uh, a question, maybe something along these lines. Am I, me personally, you apply it to yourself, am I interested in learning more about what Jesus says or learn more about Jesus by doing what he says? Or to put it another way, would I rather go to a class that teaches me new information, hoping that that will automatically result in transformation, or would I rather sit down with somebody uh, and the two of us are helping each other live a new way? Now, I'm not saying don't go to class. And I'm not saying you're, you're welcome, and I'm not saying don't learn anything new. Uh, I love learning new things, and I love going to classes. What I'm saying is don't substitute learning about Jesus for living life with Jesus. Don't substitute hearing wisdom for practicing and growing in wisdom. Because the word in here that is translated wise in English is the word for the person who learns how to live well by practicing it. 
Wise is not the person who marks up a lot of books and does none of the things in them. Wise is the person who says, let me give that a try. Okay, it didn't work as well as I thought. Let me try again. Let me try again. This is a lot more like actually riding a bike than studying the physics and the theory behind how a bike works. You have to get on it and pedal. The difference between the wise and the foolish is that the wise person is living it out, growing in it through practice. See, growing in the wisdom that Jesus offers isn't about asking, what's the next thing I need to learn? It's about asking, what's the next thing I need to learn to do? Because if you're anything like me, you know a whole lot more than you do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, with that in mind, let, let's move on to the imagery Jesus uses to you know, help us grasp on that visceral level uh, the difference between wisdom and foolishness in these verses. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock or on a rock foundation. Verse 26 Again, the contrast, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand or on a foundation of sand. The point of this comparison that Jesus is giving us is that if you were to look at these two houses side by side without looking at the ground underneath them, you you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. He's not contrasting, you know, a well-built house versus a poorly built house. He's not, he's not trying to set up a disparity between craftsmanship or quality or outward appearance or materials or anything like that. Uh, instead, and this is just like in the illustration of the two paths and the illustration of the two prophets, Jesus is making the point that you, you can't always initially tell from the beginning or from the outside what a thing is really like. You remember the illustration of the two paths. There's one that looks wide and beautiful and easy, and it, you wouldn't expect it by looking at it, but it leads to destruction right off a cliff. And on the other hand, there's this path that is narrow and, and constraining and difficult, and it doesn't look appealing, but it's the one that opens out into life. Or the two prophets. He says, I know this prophet looks like they're doing great things and saying great things. Looks like gentle as a sheep, but underneath is, you know, ravenous as a wolf. You can't always tell immediately just by external appearances. And the same is true of these two houses, these two buildings. They look the same. Looking at them, you're like, I mean, they both look good until you look below the surface at the foundation. A while back, I was talking with a construction engineer about this passage. Uh, He told me that on any job, uh, the first thing you build, the first, after clearing and prepping the site and all of that, the first thing you actually build is the foundation. And the taller and the heavier the building, the, the deeper and the stronger the foundation needs to be. He said the, the real marvel of a skyscraper is not how high it reaches into the air, but how deeply it drives down into the dirt in order to stay standing. He said, while everyone else is going to the top and looking out the view, he's like, I want to see the foundation. Like, that's the cool part. Also, I don't want to go to the very top unless the foundation's solid. 
See, the foundation is the core and the central starting point for any building project, once you're actually starting to put stuff in the ground, because it doesn't matter how well built the house on top of the foundation is. If the foundation's bad, the house is bad. So Jesus tells a story about two house builders, one who's wise, one who's foolish. Not wise or foolish because of how they built their houses, but wise or foolish because of what they built their houses on. One chose rock, the other chose sand. Now, the, the point of Jesus' illustration isn't really for us to try to like, figure out, okay, what's analogous to rock and what's analogous to sand? This isn't an SAT, SAT question, you know, like Jesus is to rock, like sand is to, and you fill in the blank. One author actually writes and says, you know, be careful not to too quickly say, oh, the rock, build on the rock, that's Jesus, right? Uh, because when you, when you start to focus on, well, the foundation is Jesus, it becomes very easy and tempting to think you build on the rock by believing in Jesus. As if believing or just cognitive assent or even trust to what Jesus says is the entire point of this, because it's not. Jesus isn't Again, he's not so much comparing the foundations as he's comparing the builders. The one who was wise enough to choose rock and the one who was foolish and chose sand. Agreeing with Jesus isn't enough. Hearing without doing isn't hearing at all. In this comparison Jesus makes, he says the wise builder, the guy who's, you know, like the one who who wants to build a building that will stand and says, well, I'm going to pick a strong foundation, is the one who hears Jesus' words and listens and does what he says. So don't make a whole meal out of the difference, like what's rock and what's sand and what are every little grain of sand or anything like that, except to understand somebody building a house on an unstable foundation is like somebody listening to Jesus and going, ah, that was nice, and then moving on. Jesus says, you can do that if you want. But when the winds come and the rain comes, the floods rise and the storm begins to beat on the house, do you want a house that's on a rock or a house that's on a beach? Now, again, before we move to the, the final part of, of Jesus' illustration where the rains and the storms and the floods and all of that show, show up, let, let's pause again for a minute to ask ourselves and think about, okay, how might this play out in my life? What do we, what do, we do with this? Again, a question perhaps you could, you could discuss with a, a smaller group of folks or just spend time thinking on your own. When you think about how you are crafting your life, you know, the, the kind of life that you're building for yourself and for the people that you love and care about. Would you say that you're building your life on the wisdom of Jesus? Or are you, and I put myself in this category too, so no shame here, let's just be honest about it. Are we building our lives on an amalgamation of wisdom from all over the place? Right, a little bit of stoicism from here, a little bit of free market capitalism from over here, a heavy dash of good old American pragmatic patriotism mixed in real thoroughly, and then 
if, you're, if you tend to be more of a peacekeeping type, then you, you add on a layer of turn the other cheek Jesus to kind of wrap it all together. Or if you're more of the fighting type, then you, tur- you put in a layer of turn the other table Jesus and mix all that together. Where, what, what gathering of wisdom are you building your life on? Is it, is it built on the wisdom that Jesus shares with us or a collection of things from, from all over the place that you're trying to somehow fit together? Because it's all too easy for us to look at Jesus as the God who saves us from our sins and then says, go figure out the rest. You know, try to live decently well and someday I'll take you home to be with me. When the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount is saying, well, the Jesus of all of Matthew is saying, hey, I'm going to give my life for you to find life in the kingdom, and this is what that life looks like. So, look, I'm revealing paradoxically the upside-down way of wise living that, that, that you get to experience as flourishing in the kingdom that is to come. To, to put it more bluntly... Is Jesus the guy who gets you to heaven while you figure out life on earth yourself? Or is Jesus the one who shows you how to live the heavenly life now on earth? In other words, are you building your life on sand or rock? Because a storm's going to come. A storm is going to come. Twice, Jesus says, once for each house, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on that house. And the difference in the houses isn't in how well constructed they were, or how well even the house itself withstood the storm. The difference is in whether or not the ground underneath the house was washed away by the flood and the winds and the rains. And Jesus is telling us, hey, we have a choice. You can be like a foolish builder, trusting in an unstable foundation, hearing his words and taking a little bit of it and mixing it in with everything else you're trying to live by, or you can be like the wise builder, trusting in a stable foundation, hearing his words and doing them. And in a, you know, in a very memorable way, he says, look, only the house built on a stable foundation will last. Now, I know that this illustration kind of comes with a sense of uh, judgment built into it. But let's make sure we read this. It's not judgment in a, I'm going to punish you if you build on sand sense. It's judgment in the more open-ended question of, hey, given what you're building on, when the storms come, how do you think you'll do? Do you think you'll survive? Now, for most of the history of interpretation of these verses, the church has, has understood you know, the rain and the floods and the winds kind of uh, metaphorically as the storms of life. Totally valid interpretation of this. And actually, there's, there's a lot of wisdom to, to get out of that. Um, and it's faithful to the Old Testament as well. We're going to face storms, difficulties in life. Our ability to weather those storms will be directly proportional to the extent to which we have built our lives on a solid foundation of living into Jesus' vision of wisdom, growing in that kind of whole person righteousness we've been talking about as we've gone through this sermon. 
this perspective is all through the Old Testament, especially Proverbs. Proverbs like, when the storm passes through, the wicked are swept away, but the righteous are an everlasting foundation. But there's a deeper level of imagery that comes with rain and floods and wind in the way Jesus' first hearers and readers would have heard those images. Because over and over again, the Old Testament uses the imagery of storms and floods and rain to depict God's coming judgment. Not a judgment in the sense of punishment, but a judgment in the sense of Let's see what withstands this. You can immediately think of Noah's flood in Genesis 6 and 7. But even more directly, the, all throughout the prophets, we read about God's judgment on disobedience coming swift and terrible like an unexpected storm, like a whirling tempest. So a lot of authors point out, like, Jesus takes kind of both of these strands uh, uh, from the Old Testament, both the wisdom strand of the righteous person versus the unrighteous person being swept away by the flood and the, the depiction of coming judgment from the prophets of when that storm comes, that's when we're going to find out what survives. Now, I want to be really clear here. It would be wrong to think that every literal physical storm is judgment for sin. Okay, if, it, if the storm comes through and it knocks a tree on your neighbor's house, it's not because they're especially wicked. All right, just keep that in mind. If the wind had shifted a little, it might have been on your house. And I don't think you want others thinking that of you. Anyway, the, the actual, like, phys- not every storm is a sign of judgment, but judgment and trial will come like a storm. And what Jesus is saying here is that, hey, a storm is coming. And it may be the relatively minor storms that we all face in life, a job loss or difficult circumstances or a betrayal or the breakdown of a relationship. And if those situations, looking all the way back to the beginning of the sermon, if those situations are going to be the paradoxically rich fertile ground in which we flourish and find life, as the Beatitudes taught us. We're only going to flourish in those kind of circumstances if we're grounded in living in Jesus' wisdom, accepting the invitation to live into the wise way of living he's showing us, whole person righteousness, wholly oriented toward God. But at the same time, there is also a final storm coming, that will reveal our wisdom or our foolishness. Did we build on the wisdom of Jesus in whole person righteousness or the foolishness of our own attempts to get what we desire from others through superficial, surface-level righteousness, just pulling wisdom from wherever we can find it? Because Jesus is saying here, look, in light of a storm that's coming, you, you need to know hearing without doing isn't really hearing at all. To hear is to hear and do. So I'll ask again. What are we supposed to do with this? What are we going to do with this? Because Jesus isn't asking us to build our lives on just human wisdom. 
our own ability to kind of think through what would happen if we went this route or that route. He's not asking us to build our lives on the traditions that were passed down to us from whatever authority we think is respectable and worth worth listening to. He's not even asking us to build our lives on the Old Testament law, as if all that matters is how well we obey the Torah. He's inviting us to build our lives on Him, on His words, His wisdom. Did you notice that as we read the passage? It showed up in in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I mean, this is such a claim that in the verses we're going to look at next week to close out this entire series, when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching as one who had authority. He's saying, don't build your life on any of these other things. Build your life on me. There is a a radically new Jesus-centeredness to the closing of the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus is not just another prophet like the Old Testament prophets, though he certainly sounded like one as we've gone through the sermon. And he's not just another wisdom teacher like another Solomon or a sage though he has certainly sounded like a wisdom teacher throughout the sermon. Over and over, Jesus is offering us wisdom that is more than merely human. A way of life that is more than simply law-keeping. He's offering a revelation that is more than mere repetition of past words but a revelation that digs deep down into the hearts of his hearers because Jesus is more than a prophet, more than a sage, more than human. Because he's offering us in a high-stakes choice between life and destruction, he's offering us with divine authority the wisdom to live into whole person righteousness in anticipation of the coming kingdom or foolishly living in self-centered self-righteousness, you know, building our foundations in the air and defending our own little kingdoms of nothingness. So what are you going to do with what you've heard? What am I going to do with what what I've heard? Because hearing without doing isn't hearing at all. So as we've gone through the sermon, the whole Sermon on the Mount, are we going to embrace our own inability to live up to God's commands as proof that our hearts are still in need of transformation by His grace, even as we make progress? Or are we just going to try harder to obey? Are we going to uh, embrace our temptation to look good? to be seen as righteous? Are we going to embrace that as a proof that my heart isn't yet fully oriented towards God, or are we just going to try to continue faking our way to righteousness? Are we going to embrace our anxieties about our possessions and the people that we love and our pride as proof that our hearts don't yet fully rest on God's loving, fatherly care? Or are we going to clench our fists harder, hoping that we have the savvy enough and the strength enough to assuage our anxieties about losing the things that we can't bear losing? 
Because here at the very end, Jesus says, storms will come and threaten everything we've built of our lives. Our inability to obey on our own will overwhelm us. Our desire to be praised will capsize us. Our anxieties will submerge us when we can't hold them together. And only if our lives are built on the one who has weathered the storm for us will we be able to survive the winds and the waves. So Jesus invites us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount... With the whole sermon marked up like crazy, underlines all over the place, little stars and exclamation marks, teaching that's resonated with you, thinking, ah, I want to live like that. Jesus is inviting us at the very end to say, okay, what are you going to do with this? Are you going to mark up the whole sermon, close the book, put it back on the shelf until it ends up in a box? and gets taken to the garage and eventually sold to the next person who doesn't mind a little underlining? Or will the wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount transform your life, my life, as we live in this whole person righteousness, wholly oriented towards God, living in light of the kingdom of heaven, returning to earth? Jesus is inviting us to live into the wise way of flourishing in his coming kingdom. He's given you an invitation. How do you want to respond? Let's pray. Father, the way of living that you have shown us in Jesus, the promises that you have made to us of flourishing in light of your coming kingdom, of finding the true life that we're longing for, not fully, not completely, but a foretaste of it. Father, this is an invitation we long to accept and yet are frightened of the cost. It is a hard way. It is a narrow entrance. And yet, Father, we trust that as we follow you and the wisdom of Jesus in living as, his, as a follower of him, that that way will open up into life for us. And may we, along with all of the saints that have gone before us, find in you the true life that we have longed for as we wait to one day see you face to face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.